Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, Thank you for taking my email in question. My My girlfriend wants to know what she should do about my sexual addiction. Should she join me in looking at pornography or should she shun that activity and basically say she will not be a part of it? Please let us know. Okay, well, here's what I believe to be true. When you're dealing with sexual addiction, pornography is a gateway to opening up the brain to other sexual activities that are not healthy. So no matter whether you believe that pornography in and of itself is a problem or not, if you're a sex addict, it's my opinion that it is. Now, that means that so oftentimes partners want to experiment with joining the addict in their behavior to be a part of it or to demystify it or to feel included, and that is never a good thing if the behavior is something that you would not want the person to do on his or her own. So I would tell this couple, absolutely not. It is not okay for you to look at porn because he is a sex addict. Now, oftentimes people ask me, so Carol, you feel that porn is bad. And as a CSAT, as a certified sexual addictions therapist, we're taught to be pornography neutral and to not judge people if the pornography itself does not get in the way of an interpersonal relationship. 
Okay, that's the politically correct answer. Let me tell you what I think. I think we're a relationship-oriented society. I think that we are all looking for intimacy. I believe that when somebody looks at pornography, they're learning how to objectify the other sex. And I don't think that's healthy. So I'm going to stand by my stance. Is that is that possible? Stand by my stance. And I'm going to speak against what I've been trained and say, no, I don't think pornography is healthy. It's not from a religious aspect. It's from a behavioral and developmental aspect. When you watch other people having sex, you learn how to disassociate from your own head, heart, and gut. It's like you're watching something on the screen that activates the brain but doesn't activate the heart. And I'm just a big believer in relationships and in attachment and in developing a lifestyle where you give and take. And there's no give and take in pornography. It's all about voyeurism and getting off on what you see. I'm not a fan. I don't encourage it, but I especially don't encourage it when somebody has a sexual addiction. You know, I was talking to a man this evening who really has done a great job of no longer having affairs, no longer grooming people, no longer uh, making innuendos that are inappropriate. Literally, he has really learned how to manage that behavior I know you may think it's funny that I would say he's doing a great job not doing it. But this stuff is hard, and he has done a fabulous job of practicing the skills not to do it. And as much as I'd love to give him kudos and credit, and I will today, about a year ago, much to my demise, after working a program and saying he was sober for over a year, he admitted to me and my uh, client, his, his wife, the partner, that he had been looking at porn for several months. Now, there were two problems with this. One, pornography is not healthy. And it is an objectification of women and it can no longer be a part of his lifestyle. And it keeps the gateway open to other activities, even though he may fool himself, he may believe that it won't. In 98% of the cases it does, so I don't want to flirt with that 2% that he might be a part of. I want to just believe, you know, it's like a diabetic. You can have some sugar, but if you begin to eat candy regularly, you'll go back to old eating behaviors. Okay, now fast forward. This man was looking at pornography. He was giving himself a hit. He was lighting up his brain, and he was a sex addict. As if that wasn't bad enough, he was holding a secret. He was holding a secret from his wife and from his therapist. 
And that is addict behavior. That is not okay. That is a part of addiction. And so that in and of itself, the fact that he had gone months and months and months without telling two very important people in his life, his therapist and his wife, what he was doing was an indication that he absolutely knew that what he was doing was wrong. But he was doing it, and he was minimizing, he was denying, and he was rationalizing that truly it wasn't a problem. Well, then I got to ask you, Andy, if it wasn't a problem, why didn't you tell your wife? And why didn't you tell your therapist? Okay, you didn't tell your wife because you thought she might have uh, went into a trigger mode, gotten anxious, perhaps gotten angry. I get that. But why didn't you talk to me? You know, I don't get angry. I don't get anxious. You didn't talk to either one of us because you knew that we would both say it was not a healthy choice. And life is all about choices, and that's what addiction is about, making healthy choices. So literally, for this person to ask about whether he should participate in pornography with his girlfriend when he is recovering from sex addiction is absolutely something I would oppose 100%. Okay, I got another email from someone. It said, hi, Carol, I'm a sex addict. I use pornography and fantasies to escape. It's been about two years since my last relapse. I still find myself looking at other women's body parts. Most of the time, it's less than one second and only once. I'll change my focus after the first look and think about something else, but occasionally I look again without thinking. During dinner with my wife, she said I looked at the same waitress five times. I don't remember doing it, but I believe her. And when I'm doing this, I want to know, am I objectifying? If I am, how do I stop? I'm not dwelling on the person sexually, but my head turns automatically and I end up taking a look at at her behind. I'm being very hard on myself, and it definitely bothers my wife. My counselor says it's normal male testosterone. I don't know what to do. And we'll call him Alan. Okay, Alan from Idaho. Um, You're a sex addict, and it's normal to, in early and middle recovery, on occasion, finding yourself lapsing back into old behaviors, and that's what you're talking about here. If you looked at a waitress five times, that was four times too many. If you don't remember doing it, that doesn't surprise me. That could be denial or minimization. So you ask if you're objectifying. Well, if you didn't have conscious thoughts about this person, then probably not, but you're actually participating in behaviors that I think are 100% unhealthy. So I'm going to ask you to work harder at not turning your head, not looking at somebody again, and whether it's testosterone or not, it is behavior that a sex addict cannot risk. So don't flirt with disaster. Don't play with fire. 
stop yourself after the first time or perhaps even before you get to the first time. I know you can do it. I know that you can stop looking at women's body parts. I'm glad that most of the time it's less than one second. You know, it takes a long time to train the brain not to look at all. So I'm not going to be hard on you, but I'm just going to tell you to keep working on it. Because when you work it, it works. And I know you can do that. And it sounds like you are working on it, but you need to work harder. And you know what? The other thing is, from a a partner's perspective, from your wife's perspective, it totally traumatizes her to go out to dinner with you and to notice that you're looking at other women or looking at a woman five times. So please, really curtail that behavior because it just is not healthy. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for her. And it's not healthy for both the brain and your relationship. And that is what you're trying to protect. And I know you can do it. I've seen many a person do it. So just keep at it. And I'm glad that you got with me to ask me if it was, if it was a problem because when you ask, you're ready for the answer, and you know I'm going to be honest with you. Rigorous honesty is what I ask of you and also what I ask of myself in delivering information to you that I do believe will be healthy. So, again, thanks for getting back with me. And let, I want to let anybody know they can always email me at Carol the Coach at AOL.com, or my new email address, which is carol at carolthecoach.com. And you can go to my website at Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and you can submit a form letter, the kind of thing that you might want to ask me that you don't necessarily want to put in an email. Because it's all about exchanging information and helping you get healthy. Speaking of healthy, can you hear it in my voice? I'm having some sort of allergy reaction, so I just wanted to tell you I'm feeling absolutely fine. But I am, um, I don't know, I'm definitely reacting to the weather. I'm sure many of you are too. And so... I want to ask you to do a couple of things for me. I'm going to ask you to go to my YouTube, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and look at my videos. This week I did a video on anxiety and the four types of anxiety. Well, it's actually the four types of traits that feed into anxiety. So I want to ask you, are you a person that wants to be perfect Is perfectionism part of your personality? Because if it is, it probably leads to anxiety. Or are you a person who wants excessive approval? And let's face it, any time we depend on others to uh, externally validate us, it will lead to anxiety because we just don't need to get that external validation from others. We need to find it within ourselves. 
or from our higher power? Are you somebody who doesn't listen to their body? You know, a lot of people that are prone to anxiety, they feel the feelings, but they don't calm it. They don't soothe it soon enough. And if you don't, the anxiety is going to take hold. And last but not least, in terms of personality traits that lend itself to anxiety, do you have an excessive need for control? Because if you want to control everything, you're more than likely going to feel a lot of anxiety because nobody can control their environment. You know, let's face it, it's that serenity prayer. And that prayer tells you you have to look at what you can change and have the wisdom to know the difference. You've heard it before. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I really work on living by that prayer because I really believe it helps to guide me to let go and surrender to those things that I can't control. So those are the four traits that absolutely perpetuate anxiety, and anxiety feeds into sexual addiction. So ask yourself about that. Go to my my YouTube, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and learn about anxiety. So tonight we are actually going to be talking to Carter Featherstone, and he wrote an e-book called God Knows Your Struggle, and he wants to help. Learning to Thrive in the Face of Sexual Temptation. This is one pastor's journey from frustration to freedom. And, Carter, I want to welcome you to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I I absolutely love the beginning of your book because you were so frustrated by the books on sexual addiction out there. They just didn't seem to help. They were either too clinical, there were too much theory, and you wanted a book that just kind of spelled out what to do, how to do it, and how to learn how to manage this um, affliction. So I appreciate your book because that's exactly what you've done. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, when I picked up those books, I had wrestled with this thing for 28 years already. I knew what was not going to work. And when most of their advice was behavioral, you know, maybe even super spiritual sounding, Bible sounding, which, you know, I believe the Bible, I read it and, and I look for the truth there. But, but a lot of biblical Christian cliches filled these books and I knew I'd done that. I'd tried that. It will not work for me. So it was it was frustrating in that sense that what they were offering I knew wouldn't help. Well, exactly. And and tell us a little bit about your story because obviously you were a pastor and you know, you were very upfront and said, I got busted by my wife. So tell me a little bit about <laughs> what happened to you. Yeah. Yeah, those were very painful days back then. I got busted 18 years ago. I was pastoring. I'd been a senior pastor for four years, leading our church in a tremendous growth. We doubled the size of the church since I had arrived. We uh, had been renting from a Christian school, and we bought our own property and built our new building, 
and the whole church was in a positive upswing, and two weeks later, I stepped down and resigned. And um, what had happened was, uh, as I got into my own counseling, I realized that preacher man, preacher man was one of my false identities. It was one of the ways I was trying to hide my shame, hide from my shame, and being well-liked, being well-regarded, preaching good sermons, earning the silent applause of all the people was one of my ways I was trying to feel better about myself. And so all of my ministry experience, the 13 years prior to the day I resigned, I, in counseling, I began to see just how, how much that was my attempt to comfort myself and heal my shame. But, of course, being a preacher or any kind of false identity doesn't heal your shame. So no, I it resigned. Does. As a matter of fact, in your book, you reference your false identity as shame. So, so talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, if shame is our inability to accept ourselves on the mild end, and on the deeper end, it's self-hatred or even self-rejection, Shame is this inability to feel comfortable in your own skin. You hate who you are. You hate how you've been made. You hate how God has made you. And you're seeking some kind of relief. I mean, we're all going to seek relief from shame. And in my life, Preacher Man was way down the road. In fact, when I was a senior in high school, one of my girlfriends laughed and said, you're going to be a preacher when you grow up. And I laughed at her. I thought, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I know what truly God-oriented people are like, and I'm not one of them. Uh, So being a preacher was not on my radar. But at age 13, at summer camp, I learned about masturbation. And so a fantasy mind with my fantasy scripts and masturbation became the place of comfort for me because of my shame. My shame had started uh, quickly and pointedly. I can remember the, the very day it set, its, uh, it set deep pylons inside my soul. It happened in the fifth grade in the lunchroom when all of a sudden the eternal question all fifth grade boys have at some time is who can beat up who? And who ranks in the class of heavyweight contenders in the class? And when the discussion suddenly emerged as to who could beat up who, who's tougher than who, who's stronger than who, I looked down at my skinny wrists and my little fists, and I knew right then and there, I lose. I lose. Life suddenly changed and I lose. I'm a loser. I'm skinny. I'm weak. And I'm not fast enough. I can't do anything about it either. I'm stuck. And I hate who I am. And eventually became, I hate how God has made me. And that's when shame got birthed in my heart. And so I spent the next year scrambling, trying to be a funny guy, trying to be a nice guy, being a people pleaser. 
then I discovered basketball, and there was a place for a skinny white boy somewhere, and that was on the basketball court. So I went to basketball, and that served to hide my shame for about three years until I had played out my years of basketball, and there was no place else to look. So then, well, you know, uh, obviously you're talking about that core issue that oftentimes feeds shame, and that has to do with not being good enough, no matter yeah. whether you're playing basketball, no matter whether you're making good grades. When you don't feel good enough, when you're disconnected from a higher power, when you don't realize your own sense of self, it's going to lead to some sort of addiction. Yes. Yes, I had a friend who told me that after the doctor analyzed his psychological life, he said, you know, you're either going to be an addict, uh, an alcoholic, a drug addict, or a sex addict. It was just a matter of which one you found. And when he told that story, I kind of gasped on the inside because I thought that was so true of me. The good thing is I didn't like the taste of alcohol. I didn't even like the taste of beer. And secondly, I was a I was a church kid. I grew up in church. My higher power was God, and I knew his name, but I was afraid of drugs, so I never got into drugs. But, you know, masturbation is so secretive. It's hidden away. No one has to know. So it was the perfect addiction for me. On the outside, I looked like I was a... a Great fun kid, a church kid. All the parents liked me, but deep inside I hated who I was, and now I hated my despicable secret behavior, and it was just continuing to feed itself and feed my shame. Well, and so obviously you never felt good enough, and then somehow you met Cindy. So tell us a little (laughs) bit about that relationship. Yes. Well, I uh, I finished my seminary training. During college days, God wrestled with me, and in a higher paddle battle, power, a higher power battle in my dormitory room at Christian College, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor. So from the college degree, I went on to the seminary to get a master's in theology. I did that four-year program and moved to the area where I live now. And I was an assistant pastor in a church when I met my wife. We did not get married until I was almost 32 years old. That meant a lot of my single years, I was still walking in my secret addiction, but I also was not doing, I was not having healthy relationships because I didn't love myself, so I didn't know how to love others well. I faked it all and fooled everybody because I was a preacher hiding behind the pulpit. But deep inside, I was broken. My shame was not allowing me to learn to love, to give, to serve others well. You know, my secret life was about satisfying myself and keeping myself happy. So I met Cindy and um, somehow... I put things together in a better accord. I think because I was so old, I thought, you know, it's time to get this thing right. It's time to have a good, healthy relationship. And um, 
you know, my wife had her areas of brokenness as I had my areas of brokenness. There's no way that she was a perfect 10 looking at me a four and wondering why she would marry me. You know, she knew her brokenness and I knew mine. And so we got to marry together. We married thinking, you know, we're, we're going to heal this thing and it's going to be better, which, of course, we know never does work. And so our first 10 years of marriage were angry and lonely because I was a secret addict. I had a double life. I'm a pastor out in front of everybody and down at church, everybody loved me. But at home, I was withdrawn. I was moody. I'd be angry when we began, when we had children. I was emotionally detached from them. And so my wife is seeing everybody at church love me, yet she thinks something is wrong. Something's not right. And, of course, my addiction was totally a secret. So she didn't know what was going on. She just knew I was not the same man that everybody down at church was in love with. And so any kind of pressure she put on me only made me angrier. I remember one day when we were in counseling at the uh, sex addiction clinic we went to in Arizona. The the head counselor out there had us both in his office. And we were describing our situation and talking back and forth. When finally he interrupted us, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He looked at Cindy and he said, he said, I bet everybody down at church loves Carter and thinks he's wonderful, but they think you are an angry, mean woman. My wife nearly came off the couch so excited to be validated. She said, yes, yes, that's it, that's it. They all think I'm mean and angry, and they all just love him. And that was just one of those days of full-on exposure. I sat there on that couch knowing I'd been busted fully now. I was a fraud. And can I, I knew I was what, a fraud. Go ahead. Yeah, what what place in Arizona did you go to? Who you don't have to give us the counselor's name, but where'd you go that was that insightful? Oh, oh I don't I don't mind at all telling you that was Doctor Ralph Earl. At, oh, uh, I thought so. P S S P C S. Yeah, P S. Yeah. He and He's at the time, yeah, he he's sharp. He's uh, He knows his business there, and uh, he and Marilyn Murray was there at the time, and both of them really helped me a lot. But well, of course, it you was... were lucky enough to be there at a time when, obviously, Marilyn Murray did the trauma egg. She was an amazing trauma therapist who understood feelings and not feeling good enough, and then oh. Earl... He had started that center, and I just talked with him. I just had dinner with him last year, and and even oh, though yeah. he's not actually being a therapist, he definitely has has devoted his whole life to addiction, especially sexual addiction. Yes, yes. Well, when we went out there, I was still hiding a bunch of my story. I, you know, as as addicts do, I was so stupid. I thought that we could go out there. I could hide the most of my story that no one knows about yet, and I'll just admit to what my wife already knows, 
and we'll dust things up and put some band-aids on this thing and I'll come back home and keep pastoring. <laughs> I had no idea what was in store for me when I got to Arizona because they knew. I was there for a two-week intensive, and they knew they had two weeks to beat the fool out of me and reduce me to a pulp and help me see by my own willingness to acknowledge it that I'm the sickest man in the room, and I need to know it and own it so I can get well. Well, by the end of the first week, all my secrets had come out, and my wife was devastated, and I tore my marriage down to a thread. In fact, it was barely hanging together in the extended stay hotel where my wife and I were staying. She looked at me that first weekend, and she said, you know, I don't think I'm going to stay married to you. And I knew then it's all over. My life is over. I'm resigning when I go home. I'm leaving the ministry. I'm leaving my job. I'm leaving a paycheck. And now my wife will probably leave me. And I did seriously consider suicide every day for the next six months. But nine months later, I did come home and resign. A friend of mine hired me at his little recruiting company. We did employee recruiting. I took a job with him and hid in a cubicle every day for the next nine years. But I worked for him. I went to counseling uh, here in New Orleans. My counselor was Ben Licata, who's now associated with the Gentle Path Recovery System with Dr. Carnes. And Ben walked with me for four and a half years and my wife stayed with me. Our marriage is still together. We've done a lot of healing and with more to go. But 18 years ago, when I was out there in Arizona, I remember Marilyn saying, Carter, five years ago, there'd been no help for you. Ten years ago, there would have been no help for you. We're just now learning, really, how to help the pastor, how to help an addict who is so good at hiding like you pastors are. But there's help today, and you're going to get it now. And I've never forgotten that. Today, there's lots of help everywhere. But back at that day, it was a scary place out there. Well, and obviously, Carter, that's what fed your passion to want to help other people, both individually in pastoral counseling and with your new book. And so tell us a little bit about that ebook. Tell us what made you write it and how it's different from the other books out there. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, I went through my counseling, and the, the seed for this book came from a quote. Marilyn had told me in Arizona, she said, Carter, sex addiction is a five- to six-year battle. Now, when she told me that, my back bowed up a little bit, and I thought, you know, I'm quite a Christian man. I know the Bible. I know my higher power very personally. I just thought to myself, it won't take me five to six years. But I didn't say that out loud. I knew better to do that. But I came home from there, resigned, and got into counseling with Ben. Now, and it took nine months for me to break the compulsivity of my lustful, 
fantasy mind and my masturbation. That took about nine months to break any form of compulsivity. And then it took another three or four months to finally walk away and turn away from it. And then the next year I masturbated one time. The next year I only masturbated one time in the whole year. I remember 2004 I didn't masturbate one time, not one time. So I got up, did my work, processed what I needed to, and broke the compulsivity of the masturbation. Now, that's in the first nine months, but you heard me say I counseled for four and a half years. So what was I doing for those other three years? Well, I knew I was working on my shame and my shame-based identity and the fact that I didn't like myself. I hated myself. I felt inadequate, inferior since the lunchroom table in the fifth grade when I knew that I was not going to be able to beat up very many guys in my class and I hated my skinny wrists and my little fists, and I didn't know what I would do about it. Well, that was what I remained in counseling working on, working on my shame-based identity. Well, one day, uh, I finished up my counseling four and a half years, and I was still working as a headhunter at this employee recruiting firm. But Ben and I had finished counseling. He'd released me and let me go. And uh, I was still working in this secular job when one day I made a serious mistake in the office. I blundered a position that I was doing a search for, and the client company fired me from the search. So I felt horrible. Oh, I was so humiliated and ashamed. I had not had anything this powerful knock me upside the head since the day I resigned from the church. So this overwhelming, powerful feeling of shame began to ride over me again. And the next day I was driving down the highway and I can remember suddenly in through my window of my car like it was a foreign dark angel or something. I felt this voice just come into my car and start accusing me and shaming me again. But when it did, it I gathered up my internal strength. I felt the presence of my higher power. I took God and I turned toward that uh, toward that message, that voice, that presence in my car. And I said, wow, I haven't heard from you in years, but I'm not buying you. You're not shaming me. Take that old message, those old lies, and get out. And as soon as I did that, my car was quiet. The shaming voice was gone. And I sat there for a minute. I thought, wow. I haven't heard that voice in a long time, months, months, maybe a year, maybe, hey, wait a minute. And at that time, I started counting on my hand the years, wait, 99, 2000, 2001, 2, 3, 4, and I realized it was year six. And I thought back to Marilyn's words, and she said, Carter, sex addiction is a five to six year battle, but Carol on that day, in my car, I had an epiphany, and I became smarter than my counselors. I said, oh, no, the sex addiction's not a five- to six-year battle. I knocked that out in the first year. What takes five to six years 
is changing at the level of identity. Because shame is an identity, you've got to make a change at the level of identity. And on that day, all my work came together. All the dots got connected, and I realized, wow, what takes five to six years is understanding your shame-based identity, doing the work to confront it, to heal it, to counteract it, and to dismiss it from your life and get firmly rooted and established in an authentic identity of self-love. Well, and you know, I know that in your book you talk about the two identities, one being, of course, that shame-based identity that you talk about in your story, and the other is a spiritual identity that God gives you um, when yes. you open yourself to the relationship with him. So at that point, did you, despite the fact that you were a pastor, did you really open your heart to him? It was it was at that point I think I understood God better than ever as well. Because when you enter into a personal relationship with God and it's and he shares his life with you, he shares it into your spirit. Now I believe my theology tells me there's a difference between your spirit and your soul. Your sex addiction is out in the soul. If God's life is in your spirit, then the sex addiction has to be in your soul. But out there in your soul as well is this shame-based identity. And it's a phony identity. It's a false identity. It is built on the things that you've been through in life, the hurts and the traumas. But the shame-based identity, you built yourself. You built it with your own uh, ruminations, your own thoughts about yourself, your self-condemnation, your self-rejecting thoughts. You build the shame-based identity that's in your soul, and it's what drives your addiction. And you drive it out, though, with the new identity that God gives you in your spirit when he shares his life with you. Does that make sense? Yes, I was getting ready to say that makes total sense. So now, carry on. Tell us some more of your story, because obviously that was around year six, and and Marilyn's (laughs) word came true, and you understood it better than you'd ever had before. Yes. So so this set me on a course. Say say that again? I said, well, this set me on a course then when I realized that what was taking five to six years for me was changing at the level of identity, that became the cornerstone about around which I began to wrap my mind and all the counseling I'd done in the past. I brought it all to this place in my mind, and I began to work out a better understanding of the work that people need to do. That's why I wanted to throw those books across the room earlier in my counseling because I knew they weren't helpful. What was not helpful was they were not helping me with my shame. I remember I'd pick up these books and they would talk about shame, but they didn't tell you what to do with it. Well, they told you to go get a counselor. That's what they told you to do. They said, everyone has shame. So when you find yours, go get you a counselor and pay $95 an hour or more to get help with it. Another man said in a book, he said, you know, shame is like a bear in a cave. You got to go into that cave and you got to wrestle with it. But he didn't tell you how to wrestle, what to do when you're wrestling. So 
when I had this epiphany that the whole battle against shame is changing at the level of identity, because shame is an identity, I realized that's why I didn't like those books. They were trying to change my behavior, but no one was helping me change my identity. So your identity is found, for me in the Christian faith, identity is found in Scripture, framed in dialogue with God, and then it's finished out in intimacy with wonderful friends to walk with you. Think of it like building a house. The blueprint for your identity is found in Scripture. The framing carpenters come and build up a frame that the wind can still blow through. That framing is what you do in dialogue with God. He helps you see the framing of your identity. But then you walk with healthy people in intimate relationships, giving love, receiving love. And in those loving relationships, you build out the fullness of your new identity in God. Okay, so so that is what somebody does who really wants to work through their shame. What do you tell people that have trouble with God? They don't believe in a higher power. They don't believe in God or Jesus. Is there any hope for them? Well, you know, I, I realize you and your relationship with God or your non-relationship is so much in God's hands. You know, God is a person. That's how. That's why we have personhood, because he's a person. And persons reveal themselves or they don't. You know, I just told you about my wife, Cindy, but if she doesn't get on the phone here and say hello to you, you could always go home doubting whether she really exists because she did not reveal herself to you. And God has to reveal himself to us. And so if you don't, you're not sure about him, first thing I would do is just say, God, if you're real, if you are the God of the Bible, you're the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're the maker of heaven and earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior that my friends talk about, if you're real, I want to know you because I need help with this addiction. Then the second thing I would tell them is, you know, most of us have a false theology. You know, there's some esoteric philosophical spiritual people who almost tell you that you can't really know god but that's what scripture is there for to tell us what he's like now we can misinterpret it but there's a wonderful passage in isaiah 54 where in isaiah 53 the chapter before it isaiah 53 is the wonderful passage that predicts that the Uh, Son of God will come to earth and die on a cross for the sins of the people. And when he does, God says he'll be finished with our sin. He'll be all done with it. That will take care of the problem for him. That's chapter 53. The next chapter, Isaiah 54, is the most wonderful passage I've read in years. In that chapter, God goes on to say, Shout for joy now. Shout for joy and start singing. That's how he opens the chapter. And so your first thought is, well, 
sing and shout for joy. Why? Because of chapter 53, because I took your sins away. So in 54, he says, shout for joy, start singing because of the good news of the previous chapter. Then you get to verse 10, and God says, this is a new day for me because I've taken all your sins away. I want you to know I am no longer mad. I will never rebuke you anymore because of chapter 53, because I've dealt with your sin, and I'm no longer mad. I'm not angry at you, nor will I rebuke you. I had someone point that out to me, and I take people to those verses all the time. We often think of God. He hates us. He won't help us. He's not going to deliver us from this addiction. we got to do it ourselves because we're so despicable now because of what we do. You know, just think a sex addiction is so much more despicable. I wish I'd been an alcoholic. You know, I could pastor again today if I were an alcoholic, but I don't because sexual addiction is so much nastier. It's so much more despicable, and we we struggle with our shame so much more. But in Isaiah 54, God says, I'm no longer mad at you. And I love to take people there and show it to them. I had a woman who'd been raised in a tough denominational church that all they said was, God's mad at you. God's mad at you. You're a little sinner. God's mad at you, and you better fix your life up. And she couldn't fix her life up. She tried, but she couldn't. And when we quoted Isaiah 54:10 to her, this lady came off the couch. She came off the couch. She fell to her knees and she said, is that true? Is that true? I said, yeah, baby, look at it. We opened up the Bible and she had an epiphany that changed her life. She read it for herself. God's not angry at me. Even when we know that story in the Gospel of John where the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. And Jesus started writing in the dirt, or he says he wrote on the ground. What if you, They were in the temple. Here's what's fascinating. The, the floor of the temple is not dirt. The floor of the temple is stone. So when Jesus knelt down and started writing in the stone... That's why everyone who wanted to stone her dropped their stones and walked away. And they left her there alone with Jesus. It's like Jesus was writing in the stone the same way God wrote on the stone tablets back in Exodus with Moses when he wrote the Ten Commandments. So Jesus probably starts writing the Ten Commandments. We don't know what he wrote, but I'm supposing he wrote the Ten Commandments in the stone on the ground. And so everybody left, and Jesus is kneeling there alone with the woman. Now, she did commit adultery. She didn't, she didn't say they're lying. I didn't really do this. She was caught. And you know what Jesus said to her? I don't condemn you. Go now and sin no more. And so if, let me just check in with you, because obviously my question to you was, what about people that don't believe in a higher power or in God or in Jesus? And what I heard you saying 
is just ask for evidence, ask for proof, ask for a relationship, and that will bring him to to the person. Now let me ask you something yeah. else because you yeah. obviously have spent a lot of time feeling shame, looking at shame, and now mm-hmm. understanding shame as an identity. And it's yeah. directly relational. It's relational to who you were when you grew up and now your relationship to God. So you had said in your book that the road less traveled was a wonderful gift when it talked about grace. Would you share yeah. with our listening audience what that means when you think that Dr. Peck is closer to understanding grace than most pastors? Explain what that is. What yeah. is grace to you? Okay. Um I operate with two definitions of grace. Uh, Most New Testament Bible-believing churches have a wonderful definition of grace, and it's that grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. It's free. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You receive it freely as God gives it to you because he's a God of love. So grace is eternal life. Grace is forgiveness. Grace is all the divine endowments that God gives you freely without you earning or achieving them. But then in The Road Less Traveled, Dr. Peck talked about, you know, he, he believed in evolution. And, but he was, he was an honest scientific evolutionist. Dr. Peck said, you know, evolution says that we all get better and better and better, yet that's a contradiction of the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says everything winds down, runs down, and tends toward chaos. How could evolution take the human species more advanced when everything else in life goes the opposite direction? Then he expanded, Dr. Peck said, you know, why is it we get sick? I mean, how is it we can get well after we get sick? The second law of thermodynamics would basically say once you get sick, you're toast, you're over. Once sickness hits your body, you're never going to get well because order tends toward chaos and destruction. You know, if you leave an old car out in a field for 30 years, and then you go out there and try to start it, you can't. It's not going to be pristine and in perfect working condition. It's going to be broken, rusted. The tires will be flat. The belts will be broken. Why? Because of the second law of thermodynamics that everything winds down and tends to go toward chaos. But Dr. Peck said something in this universe causes us to overcome sickness, overcome death, overcome frailty, overcome weakness. There's something that takes us in the opposite direction of that scientific law. And he says, it's grace. I jumped out of my seat when I was reading the book. I said, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's what grace is. But we're preaching sort of half of grace. So here's my definition of grace. The fullness of grace is this. Grace is that divine movement of God, that invisible, wonder-working power of God where he moves upon your heart 
and leads you out of the chaos of an addiction into the sanity of sobriety and strength. You know you can't do it on your own. You've been trying to do it on your own, and what you need is grace. The move of God upon your heart that brings about a change that's reflected in your life. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and you said that Dr. Peck was actually a scientist, so the fact that he was able to identify that missing piece, grace, can help people to feel that that is why they're able to create that other identity. Yes, yes. That that new identity that helps us overcome shame is basically the identity that comes from your union with God. And Okay, so and that's what, I have one more important question for you because we're mm-hmm. wrapping up and I've got to know. Okay. Um, you know, you speak to men and you often say that men are fighting the battle in the wrong place, that most yes. men are trying to stop the behavior only, they're white-knuckling it, and trying to have more self-control out of their own strength. So what would you advise them to do? The most important work, of course, as we said here, is making a change at the level of identity. But what drives the addiction is shame. And shame is not just an emotion. Shame is an identity. So the work we need to do is identity-based work. It's identity-based transformation. But where did your identity of shame come from? It came from all the trauma, the hurts, the rejections, the wounds, all the pain of your backstory. We've got to go back to your childhood, to how your mom was, your dad was, how their marriage was, how your home was, who hurt you, who wounded you, who emasculated you, who molested you, who abused you, who knocked you down, who beat you down. We've got to go back and find your story. And then that story is going to be the story of shame. And the way you heal your shame, this is what worked for me. Every day I got on my knees to pray and I asked God for one memory from my childhood that brought shame into my heart. I would ask God for one memory. And suddenly that memory would arise in my heart. And there on my knees in prayer, I would look at the memory walk through the memory, I would see who was there, what happened, what was said, what did they do, what did I do, and I would, you know, who's the man that talked about the unfinished business, the book about the inner child, Um, that man talked about how we all carry unfinished business in our hearts, and I had borrowed his term from years earlier, yeah, healing the inner child within or something, yeah, that, that man, that's him, that's him. Well, Charles introduced me to this concept of unfinished business. So I tied that to shame and said, that's what our shame is. It's all of our shameful, unfinished business in our lives that needs to now get finished by the grace of God. 
And so on my knees every day, I'd ask God for a memory, and then I'd go into the unfinished business of that memory, and I would finish it. I would forgive other people in the memory. I'd forgive myself in the memory. I would let God off the hook if I was holding him accountable for some memory. I would cancel the lie I bought about myself. I would cancel out my shame. I would cancel out attitudes. I'd reject them. And then I would let God speak a new truth to me. And after the prayer time, I would get up and journal it. I would journal what I saw, what I released and let go of. And I would journal what I received from God and write it down. You know, if you do that, God's often going to tell you how much he loves you. And that's how you begin to overcome shame. You know that a God loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not rebuking you. He really loves you. He He wants to share his life with you, and that life will overcome your shame. Okay, now, in your ebook, you talk about scripts. And so I'm going to bring this back from shame, <laughs> that love of God, and these scripts where you say that men's fantasy and masturbation scripts can be the key to overcoming the addiction. So explain how the painful stories of one's life will often determine the nature of sexual acting out. Yes, yes. I can do this best by telling a story that over-illustrates. I'll try to make it fast. I counsel with a man who's about early 70s, 70, 71 years old. He t- we went through his sexual history. We went back and we went through the story of his life. And I said, tell me about your first sexual experience or your first uh, experience with a girl. He said, I went to a camp one time, and I was 14. It was right after my freshman year in high school. And the girl who was the camp nurse um She was about five or six years older than I. She was a college student. She cornered me in the kitchen. She flirted with me. Then she grabbed me and kissed me. I said, are you kidding? Wow, 14 years old and a 21 or 22-year-old girl kisses you. That must have been just titillating beyond all imagination. He said, oh, it was wonderful. So every night I returned to her cabin that she had alone And she and I would kiss. We only kissed, but we would kiss for 20 minutes before I had to run like a lightning back to my cabin before lights out. Well, the next summer, there was an older girl in who who came to visit a family in his in his neighborhood, her cousins. And so playing around the neighborhood, this older girl. uh, He also met her and kissed her and he had his first sexual touching experience not sexual intercourse but touching then two years later he's in college when he starts his sophomore year of college oh again that second girl was an older girl then his second year of college he's a sophomore when a senior girl walks up to him and this senior says to him i've been watching you since last year when you were a freshman And he's just seduced by her words. So he starts dating a senior, and he has his first sexual experience now with an older girl. Then he got married years later. An older woman, about eight years older than him, came into his store, flirted with him, got to know him, kept flirting until they were having an affair that lasted for years. 
older girl, older girl, older girl, older girl. I looked at him that day and I said, I've got a hunch. What kind of pornography do you look at? And almost with a grin on his face, like he couldn't wait to tell me, he said, incest. And I didn't freak out because I knew what he meant. I said, yes, you like to watch sexual videos of older women seducing younger men. He said, yes. Do you wonder why? I said, I don't wonder why anymore. I know exactly why you do it. The cry of your soul is to be healed by the love of an older woman. She's become, the older woman has become like an idol to you because he married a woman younger than he. And so this older woman's seduction has become an idolatrous scandal in his heart, and that's what drives his pornography. At age 70, to find the root of the story, you have to go back to age 14. His father died that summer, and that girl came into his life and seduced him. Wow, I said, okay, that's it. I looked at my own life. Why? What were my fantasy scripts about? Uh, to be honest, Carol, I actually never had a problem with pornography because I never got on the Internet until after I resigned from the ministry. My pornography was my mental scripts I created in my mind. Therefore, all my scripts were made up of girls I knew in life. Some of them I dated and some I didn't, some I wanted to date, but because I grew up skinny and weak, inferior and inadequate, all my scripts were about being a superhero to the girl of my dreams. And I fantasized her wanting me, but not just wanting me, admiring me, because that's what I wanted in life. My heart wanted to be admired. That's what drove my basketball, and that's what drove the ministry. I was going to be a preacher because there I could be admired, and that is so sick. It's so unhealthy. It's nice to be accepted and affirmed, but it's self-righteous to want to be admired. That's not a good term. And so everyone has a heart that cries out, for something missing or lost in their heart. And if they will analyze their fantasy scripts and the kind of pornography they look at, that will be a clue to what is in their heart and what drives their addiction. And I, written, I wrote two chapters about that in my book and can explain it in more detail. All right. And so, again, I want to remind people, <clears throat> excuse me, to read your book and if you would, let us know where they can get it, how they can get it, and the total name, which is God Knows Your Struggle, and He, and wa- he's and got he help. Learning he's got to Thrive it. in the Face of Sexual Temptation, One Pastor's Journey from Frustration to Freedom. How can they get the book, Carter? Carol, it's an e-book, so it's at the Kindle store on Amazon.com. Just go to the Kindle store there on their website, Amazon.com. Type in my name, Carter Featherston, or you can start with the title, God Knows Your Struggle. 
You type in either one of those, and my book will come up. My book is on sale right now for 99 cents. I really want to get it out there. So if your audience uh, listens to the podcast and goes in the next two or three days, they'll get this book for 99 cents. You can also reach it through my blog site. I have a blog where I write about these themes of identity and shame. And the blog is at my name, carterfeatherston.com. Well, Carter, you have been incredibly helpful tonight in helping people to understand their shame and understand their script and understand what they need to do to absolutely work through this issue by changing their identity. Thank you so much. Carol, thank you. I'm really honored that you liked my book and you invited me to be here. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. You have a great day and God bless. Thank you, Carol. God bless you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. So as we were speaking, that is Carl Featherstone, and he obviously is a pastor who gave it up totally to get what he needed to create a new identity based on its relationship with God. And thank you so much for listening. You know I feel very honored to have you here with me on the show. Again, I'm kind of sorry that I sound like this, but what I know to be true is that it's nothing but allergies, nothing to worry about, and hopefully next week I'll be clear as a bell. So you have a great week, and just remember, there will only be one of you at all times. So I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. We'll catch you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach.